Yes, if there's one thing that I've been learning, it's that I have much to learn. How about you? Yes. I'd like us to just bow our heads before we begin. Heavenly Father, help us to look heavenward this morning. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Help, him to, help us to see, Lord, what you can do for us through your word. Help us to see what is possible only in Christ. In your precious name we pray, amen. So the, what we're talking about this morning is looking to Jesus. And I want to do that in a special way, and that's through his word. Because that's the only way that we can really connect with him and learn his will. And so, I want to talk about that today, looking to Jesus. And you see, a Bible study revival, that's what I'm interested in, a revival in Bible study among God's people. I think it's needed because I believe time is short and I believe Jesus is coming soon. Do you? The pioneers believed this too. They so much believed it that it, it changed the way they related to one another. They treated one another in a different way. And uh, I want to talk about that. I want to show you something about how to study like the Advent pioneers. You see, they had come out of different churches, but they did something that the churches they came out of could not do. They solved their differences in belief. Most people have never done that, but they accomplished it, not by ignoring those differences as most of the world does and overlooking them and accommodating them, but by going to Jesus and his word and searching the scriptures diligently and saying, Lord, show us wherein we are erring. Help us to see what the truth is, and if we are right, if I am right, then show me how to show my brother or my sister in a way that the truth will be clear to them. Because we may see it, but they may not see it. So Lord, help me to see how to show them. And they prayed like this, and they studied like this, and they solved doctrinal differences together like the churches they came out of could not do. And they did something else. They discovered many wonderful truths, something else that many have not done, truths that were not understood before but were for their time, 
and for ours. I want to I show you one of the things that they did to solve those differences among one another. One of the principles, there were many different principles for rightly handling Scripture that lead directly to truth. I want to show you one of those principles this morning. I'd like to show you more, but don't have time. So we're just going to talk about one of those principles for rightly handling God's Word that helped them to solve differences, one of many principles. A common error that many people make is to pit one teaching, one text, of, of one teaching of Scripture against another, handling Scripture in a way that makes Scripture appear to contradict itself. The pioneers handled Scripture differently. As one of them wrote, God's Word is truth, and truth can never what? Never what? Contradict itself. And so they believed that. Another of the pioneers was a man named William Miller. He had been a deist. And while he was having a conversation with a friend of his, he was no longer a deist now, he was a Christian. And he was telling his friend about Christianity, and his friend reminded him of his former experience as a deist and how he had, how he had fall, found so much fault with the Bible and had seen so many contradictions in the Bible. But William Miller, after some reflection, reasoned that if the Bible is a revelation of God, it must be consistent with itself. See, the pioneers were in agreement on this. He said to his friend, give me time and I will harmonize all of those apparent contradictions to my own satisfaction or I will be a deist still. Maybe not to someone else's satisfaction because they may not be open to truth and any amount of evidence presented to them they may reject. But he was going to be honest with the word and he would search it out and he would compare scripture with scripture and he would, he would find a way in scripture if it was possible he would search for Scripture to solve those contradictions for him. Isn't that neat? That was, that was what he did and believed. Who was Miller handling Scripture like? Well, let's go to the Bible and see. Let's start, let's start with the Gospel of John, chapter 7. I'd like you to open up to John, chapter 7 in your Bibles. John chapter 7.
And notice verse 37. It says, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And then Jesus went on and he said some more things. And the people were greatly impressed with what Jesus was saying here. They were so impressed that down in verse 40, it says, many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. They saw contradictions in scripture, didn't they? Well, that's not quite what I want to show you, but I want to but I wanted to show you what they were doing, which is what many people do. There was much evidence there for them to look at. The fact that the leaders could do nothing to stop Jesus. They were so powerful, but they could do nothing to stop him, it says in this chapter. This chapter also reveals that his, that his teachings were powerful and his miracles that he was performing. All of these things gave evidence to who he was and should have impressed them to search the Scriptures more diligently, but they didn't. Instead, they saw contradictions in the Scripture. And they said, he came, the, the Christ was going to be in Bethlehem. You see, this is what they had been taught. Back in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, remember, when Herod asked the priests where the Christ would be born, what did they say? In Bethlehem of Judea. And it says there, that it was all the priests and scribes that told him this. All of them were in agreement that the Messiah would come out of Bethlehem. And so that's what the people had been taught. That's why they said this in John chapter 7, because that's what they were taught. But Jesus, as you see, was in Galilee. And that seemed to be a contradiction to them. That seemed to not fit. Bethlehem, Galilee, contradiction here. Put yourself in their place. If you picture yourself there in that time, in that situation, you would probably see that as a seeming contradiction too. 
just like them. But these, all of these other things that we talked about should have compelled them to do something more. James White said, unbelief finds many contradictions in the Holy Scriptures. Faith does what? Searches for the harmony. And what? And finds it. Because faith doesn't give up in that search. You keep searching in the Scriptures. So if you believe that the Bible is the Word of God, you will search until you find the harmony that solves the seeming contradiction. Does that make sense? Let's look at Matthew and see what he did to solve this seeming contradiction of where Christ was. He searched the Scriptures diligently And he found that the Messiah was indeed to be born in Bethlehem. But then he found that there were other scriptures that said that he came out of Egypt. And there was another one that says that he would live in Nazareth. And another one that that said that he would begin his ministry in Galilee. These were all prophesied in the Old Testament. And they were all fulfilled. Matthew searched the scriptures until he found that harmony. Isn't that neat? I think that's so fantastic. So fantastic. But where did he learn it from? Who do you think he learned it from? From Jesus. He learned from the master teacher. Open your Bible to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, in verse 32, Jesus says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. The Bible goes on to say, This he said, signifying what death he should die. The people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abides forever. And how sayest thou, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? You see, these are people again seeing contradictions in the Bible. Seeming contradictions. And they thought they were indeed. They thought those those other passages that talked about him dying, they must have referred to someone else or something else, and they set them aside. Didn't understand them, didn't bother to try. Or maybe philosophized or theorized or speculated about them. But Jesus handled Scripture differently. You see, Jesus knew the same Scriptures that they did about the Messiah living forever. But he had found in Scripture also that the Messiah would die. And so, what did he do? 
How did he solve this? Let's look at the process. He said, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. What was he talking about there? The cross. The cross. And so, we're going to first draw a cross on a page. Because Jesus said, the cross will draw us all to him. So it will draw us together in unity if we focus on it. So we'll draw a cross, just for illustration here. Because the pioneers, or because, because I'm sorry, the apostles, because Jesus had died for them after the cross, after Calvary, they, their lives were transformed. They were now willing to die for him and for each other. And they treated each other differently. And they handled scripture differently. Now they went to diligently searching the scriptures to understand them in a different way. Not, not trying to search for what pleased them, but to let the scriptures explain themselves. Okay. Here we go. So let's put the, we're going to put the two views of scripture up here because in my search of scripture, I found that over in Isaiah chapter 41, and verse 22, or verse 21, Isaiah 41, 21, it says, Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. So God wants us to present our evidence. And, uh, oh, I'm pressing the wrong button here. Okay. We're going to put the two views of the people up here. And God says to bring forth our best evidence, right, in Isaiah 41, 21. So we're going to do that. We're going to put the best evidence for the view that was the most popular view, right? That the Messiah would live forever. A child named the mighty God, his government would not end. So we're going to do that. But there's another verse in the Bible that I found that, uh, let's see, in, in Jeremiah chapter 26, in Jeremiah 26 verse 2, it says, thus saith the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak unto the cities of Judah which come to worship in the Lord's house, all the words that I command thee to speak unto them, diminish not a word. That means that we need to be willing, the prophet needed to share with the people not only what was pleasing to him, but was unpleasing to him, right? That means he couldn't be selective. And so in our study of Scripture, we cannot be selective. We need to look 
at all of the evidence. And so, like Jesus handled Scripture, we need to look at the other side, right? That one would grow up and be cut off out of the land of the living. This is how Jesus handled Scripture. But there's a problem if you're looking at this screen. Both of these are in what book? Isaiah. Isaiah is saying both of these. The one in chapter 9, that the Messiah would live forever. And then in the later chapter, chapter 53, that he would be cut off out of the land of the living. So this raises a theological point or question. Did the prophet err in the first case? And did he then grow in his understanding and correct his error in the second case? Hmm. If that's so, then why did the psalmist take the position of the first side? That the Messiah would live forever. And why did Daniel take the other side, the side of Jesus, that the Messiah would be cut off? Do we have prophets contradicting one another? Are they fickle? Do they make mistakes in their writings? Sure, as men in everyday things, but when they're under inspiration of God, when they're writing the Holy Scriptures, did they err? Hmm. We could think that way, but then in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 8, we're told that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? And that means Jesus is unchanging. And if he's unchanging, then he's consistent. And if he's consistent, then what does that tell us about his word? That it would be consistent, right? So let's look then at another possibility. Let's look at the possibility. Let's just be objective here. Just be objective and look at the possibility that the prophets did not err in their writings. Just be objective and consider that. And since Jesus is in complete harmony and all of his writings therefore should be, let's do something else. Let's look for the harmony instead. Shall we do that?
Let's do that. Instead of seeing them as contradictions, let's look for the harmony. All right. So, if you notice, up in Isaiah 53, further on in that chapter, the Bible tells us that in Isaiah 53, verse 11 and 12, it says, after the Messiah is cut off, it says, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my mighty, shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. They're talking about his death again. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the great. Now, if he's, going to, if he's going to be slain, if he's going to die, what, what's this about? But it says, I will divide with him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he shall be numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sins of many and made intercession for their trans, for the transgressors. So these verses here are telling us that the Messiah would live again. Right? So Jesus, in studying these scriptures, knew that, that the Messiah was to live forever. But he saw verses that said he was to die. Now, how could both of those fit together? Well, because because he would live again, it reveals in Isaiah, that he would rise again and live again to continue living. But how long would he be in the grave? How long? Well, you know, of course, over in Jonah, over in the book of Jonah, uh, let's, let's turn there. You've, I want you to see this. I really want you to see this. This is special. In the book of Jonah. I know you've read the book of Jonah. I know you're familiar with it. But turn there with me. Because this to me is exciting. Of course, verse 17 says... But the Lord hath prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish. How long? Three days and three nights. And we know that this, that Jesus applied this to his death. So that he knew that he would be in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, right? But how did he know that? Did the Heavenly Father treat him differently than he treats us? Did the Holy Spirit communicate with him in a different way than he's willing to communicate with us? How did Jesus know that this text applied to him and that he would be in the belly of the earth? 
for three days and three nights. How did he know that? This is exciting. I want you to look a little bit earlier and notice that in verse 12, we're looking at Jonah chapter 1. In verse 12, it says, Jonah, he, Jonah, said to them, take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake, this great tempest is upon you. So throw me into the sea. What was Jonah saying? Jonah was saying, make me a sacrifice. Make me a sacrifice. Wow. Now that's something. Make me a sacrifice. But of course it says, nevertheless, the men rode harder to bring it to land. They didn't want to do this. They didn't want to do this. Not at all. Verse 14 says, Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not upon us what? What? Innocent blood. Lay not upon us innocent blood. You see, these were Gentile people And they saw Jonah in a different way. And they saw him as an innocent man. Maybe maybe as more innocent than them. But was Jonah really innocent blood? Wasn't he running from the Lord? And so he really wasn't innocent. But but as Jesus looked at these passages, he could see that Jonah was offering himself as a sacrifice. And the people looked upon Jonah as a sacrifice of innocent blood. And Jesus could see those words didn't fit Jonah but that they fit him. Wow. Verse 15. So they took up Jonah and they cast him forth into the sea and the sea ceased from her raging. Wow. God was satisfied. The sacrifice was sufficient. Now you notice in verse 16 that it says the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Don't get confused here. This sacrifice that they now offered did not save them. 
nor did they see it as saving them, as rescuing them. They were already rescued. They were already saved. So what kind of a sacrifice was this? What kind of an offering was this? This was a thank offering, wasn't it? The real sacrifice had already been given and was sufficient. And that was Jonah. Representing innocent blood. Wow, can you see the pieces coming together now? Now, now something, we're seeing something about Jesus here. But then this Jonah being in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, that sort of seems to be an interruption and seems to come into conflict with everything, with this, with this nice steady flow of information about Jesus, about the Messiah. But then let's, let's, let's go on. Let's just read a little further in the context because, remember, there were no chapter divisions in the original text. So let's look at chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me out of the belly of, my Bible says, hell. Yours may say, Sheol. Out of the belly of hell I cried, and thou heardest my voice. And in the margin, it tells us that this Hebrew word means the grave. Wow. Now it all comes together. A willing sacrifice for the people. That willing sacrifice is innocent blood. He's in a grave, in a whale. Jonah is in a whale that represents a grave. So Jonah is representing Jesus as innocent blood and as a willing sacrifice. Now he's in a whale that is representing the grave. And he's there for three days and three nights. Now, it's clear, isn't it? Isn't that neat? That's exciting to me. That's so exciting. Wow. James White describes the process that we've been just following here this way. Scripture must explain Scripture. Then a harmony may be seen throughout the whole. That's the method we just used. That's the method that the pioneers used to study Scripture. Now, they didn't really draw a cross. I just drew a cross for illustration to help you see that what we are to do is we are to take seemingly opposing passages the greatest in opposition to one another. Set, go ahead, don't be afraid. Set them beside one another. And then look for a solution text, 
a text, one or more passages, that will be the solution that will solve the seeming conflict. And if you pray and search and believe that God's word is inspired, God will bless your search. Isn't that neat? We need to handle Scripture that way. That's how they found so many truths. That's how, that's one of the principles, one of the many principles they used. I'd sure love to show you more. But I hope you've been blessed by this. I hope it's been a blessing to you. The Lord is good. And he's given his people skills and gifts and principles for handling his word like, like no other church on earth. We are greatly blessed, aren't we? And so we can say, thank you, Lord.